Okay, this is the 14th of the 7th of nine. The talk today is Karma and Discipleship. In my book, Karma and Rebirth of Consciousness, whenever I flash this book in people's faces, they seem to think that they know everything about karma already. And internally I make a little chuckle because uh, I realise that on the whole they are most ignorant on karma. They know that karma is the consequences of action. Whatever you've done in the past life, so um, you must pay the consequences of it in this life, for good or for bad, or your next life. But apart from the general principle of karma, they know very little else. The Buddhist teachings um, give us the six realms, the realm of gods, titans, animals, Preters, Asuras, and humans, and um, say that the consequences of um, your karma uh, gives you birthing in one of those six realms. Uh, you suffer hell states, or you suffer preta type existence, or god type existence if you're prideful, uh, hell type existence if you're hateful, and so forth. And then eventually um, you're reborn as humans, and then you go through another spate of karma creation, and bang, into one of these six realms. Uh, both of the books, uh, one is to be published soon, I concepts. I point out in there that the six realms is symbolic only. It does relate to certain chakras, a grouping of six chakras within the body, into which one is born in consciousness. And that... Uh, However, that there are hell states, there are preta-like states and animal-like states that we are born into. When one um, leaves one's body, goes into the bardo state, uh, there is definitely hell. There's definitely heaven states and so forth, which is the consequence of our karmic action. Um, into the animal kingdom directly, as I point out in the book Karma and Rebirth of Consciousness, is not a possibility. Uh, we've long evolved out of that um, state. The Buddha himself did not put any effort into reforming the ancient Hindu teaching um, based on, on fear if you uh, hurt a lot of animals or if you hurt others, then the fear of being born an animal should be sufficient to stop you from doing those types of violent or cruel actions. Uh, the fact is that the human body is an animal body. So whenever one incarnates into a human body, one is incarnating into an animal body. It's human consciousness that incarnates into an animal form. And the animal form is dog-like, ass-like, monkey-like, elephant-like, uh, depending on the types of attributes that are there. Now, this is, up till now, basically an exoteric teaching. And most of you are aware of this. When it comes to discipleship, which is the emphasis of this talk, we're looking at karma uh, in a different way. We're looking at things that were, or types of actions were done in former lives. We're looking also at samskaras, tendencies created in former lives that are coming up in this life. Uh, for instance, 
if you uh, were a soldier and a number of lives in a row, um, you could have extreme hatred for some cause. Um, you can have a, a fear of death or you could have a, a, a real understanding of that all life is to lead to death. Uh, there's the um, concept of um, samskaras that may have come up from having killed people. If, um, for instance, you hated a lot of causes, um, for instance, you're a Catholic in the, uh, a few centuries ago in uh, between the wars of religion and you hated Protestants, um, later on this may sort of come in a different uh a different um, disguise as a hatred, say, for Jews and, uh, and say, the uh, Hitler era or whatever. Um, these lives come up where these samskaras of the same types of tendencies have been built. In discipleship, it's samskaras that have been built up from a number of lives that give you a predisposition to a certain attitude, inherent fear of this. Um, a, a loquacity, wanting to talk a lot, for instance, that um, have to be looked at and dealt with. So that's one, one stream of looking at the discipleship and karma on the path. Another thing that I want to um, point out is that all of those that have been on the path that have uh, are disciples that are already bodhisattvas from the, the Buddhist point of view, <laughs> have already um, had quite a number of lives where they were teachers. Often there's a, a strong pride element that um, comes in as a consequence that they have to overcome. The other thing to point out is that all karma is group karma. Very few of us act alone in anything we do. Uh, we, as social animals, we incarnate as part of a group, as part of a mandala of enlightened beings striving towards a common goal. In um, in uh, areas such as here in Kalampong, you can see um, different localities, different groups of people living out communal life. Um, they are different. Um, they, they can be um, Tamang, Ray, sort of Gorka, uh, social sort of structure. They can be different castes. Um, and it all locks them into an exoteric type of group, an exoteric type of a consciousness and if you trace these lives back you find <coughs> that um, a group of people will have had as a, a common village life say in Germany two three hundred years ago or in China somewhere else and they incarnate from locality to locality from time zone to time zone uh, undergoing similar experiences um, working out their collective karma um, you know, shopkeepers, uh, housewives, husbands, uh, all of these people interrelate in the community and they manifest different uh, uh, vocations, different interrelations according to um, how they manifested in the past. 
And and it's similar with the disciples. With discipleship, it is the Bodhisattva vow that is the predetermining uh, condition. Uh, the beings incarnate um, according to the need of where they must incarnate. However, they are part of a group. They are part of a group of disciples. You may see them, all of you for instance, um, here in a monastery, say in Tibet, a hundred years ago. Um, then before that you may have been a monastery, say, in Europe as um, a different types of devotees or a follower of a certain type of philosopher or a reader of that philosopher's books that, um, or you're caught up in a certain cultural movement such as the Renaissance, a, a, um, a movement that transforms society. Um, you're different individuals but you're involved in the same type of activity, the same type of activity that is beneficial to the society or to the world at large of which you've incarnated into. You don't necessarily know each other at the time, but later on, sometime during that life, your paths converge. Now, with um, discipleship also, you generally get um, this happening. A high initiate, a enlightened one, incarnates somewhere. Um, you can have an example, for instance, as Milarepa in Tibet, um, St. Francis in, in um, uh, Assisi in Italy at the time. Uh, we can go backwards and forwards in different cultural situations where you get a great one incarnating. And that particular great one sets the tempo for myriads of lives to follow and then incarnating around that great one are the disciples from former lives. Therefore you get um, uh, Sister Claire in St. Francis's case, um, Gampopa in Milrepa's case, um, incarnating uh, Rechum. They incarnate in relationship to the fact that their teacher has incarnated. And they are the externalizations of the mandala that that teacher represents. And they've come to manifest a new bodhisattvic service, a new type of service activity for the benefit of sentient beings, for the benefit of the humanity or the other kingdoms of nature. The teacher then sort of goes through um, the struggles that they all do of um, regaining enlightenment. And they are all bound by karma. They are all bound by the handicaps of their past lives. In Milarepa's case, for instance, um, you, give, you get him um, learning sorcery, um, the, the black arts. He um, destroyed a house full of people and so forth. Um, Mapa later on had to clean him of that through making him build stupas and um, buildings and destroy them until his back was full of pain and suffering, he was broken. Uh, seven years he lived like that. Um, <coughs> even the Buddha uh, had his forms of karma. He had to go out into the streets, though he was born as nobleman's son, the king's son, um, born with lots of wealth and opulence, given concubines galore to, to look after him so that he would not know suffering and pain and 
those types of things. So it would not become a world conqueror in the orthodox sense of looking at this concept. But um, he went out and there he saw the, the, the sick man, the old um, person, the dead and so forth. Um, he saw the, the poverty of the people. Um, he realized that there was um, something more to life than just opulence and wealth and everything that's life, um, makes life enjoyable. No matter where you're born, when a great one incarnates, then the disciples incarnate in accordance to their particular forms of karma and their um, integral duties to perform in society. Uh, and they go through life learning the basic things they need to learn according to the background karma from their past lives until they're ready to meet that one. And then their life is transformed. The other aspect to deal with um, karma when um, we're looking at it from the point of discipleship, from the point of yoga meditation, is the way the nadis, the pranas work through the chakras. The transformation of all of the nadis in the system. Now, this produces a whole crop of different types of karma. Uh, the karma of psychic sickness, the karma maybe of in a former life um, prematurely releasing kundalini fire, the, the karma of psychic manipulation maybe of disciples when you are a teacher, uh, the karma of the premature awakening of a chakra and abusing um, the awarenesses or the powers of that chakra in a former life also produces um, certain types of sicknesses as pranas come to the surface. In um, my next book, Cellular Consciousness, there's a, a, a few hundred pages going into the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Bada Todol, and there um, we're talking about what they call the pheromorphic deities, the um, animal-headed uh, female deities that uh, uh, guardians of various gates of the, the chakras and uh, the way that they transform pranas is the whole subject of that section of the book. Uh, this is also um, a very important aspect to do, to deal with, to look at when you're looking at karma in discipleship. And this is our theme. What I'm giving you now is the, the background of various ways of looking at your discipleship. The other thing to point out, and this is also important, is the fact that if any of you have actually had a look at your past lives, if you've actually seen the stream of lives you've had, you'll find that there's been hundreds of them. And you can't possibly fix up all of the karma of those hundreds of lives in this one little life. Um, and matter of fact, before you come into incarnation, uh, it is worked out um, for you um, by your higher self. We won't go into the polemics of the Tathagatagaba and uh, what a soul is and what a soul is not. But um, that aspect of the karma of those lives that need to be fixed up in this life, 
is chosen. And um, that which will lead you to the next highest step of your discipleship is worked out so that it all unfolds correctly in time and space. You're giving the testings you need so that the attributes or aspects of your past karma that you actually have to deal with in this life are dealt with. And so you can progress onwards uh, to becoming an enlightened being. Now, everyone here, and um, Buddhism tells us that all contain the Buddha essence. Everyone contains the Tathagatagava, the womb of the Buddha. Um, we're all to become Buddhas eventually. All sentient beings will become Buddhas eventually. Even the lives incarnated in plants will eventually become Buddhas. It's just a matter of time. Uh, a matter of the amount of earth globes that will appear to accommodate that evolutionary expansion. But becoming a Buddha basically means this. You are to cleanse all of your karma to do with physical plane livingness, astral plane livingness, and the livingness of your concrete mind. It must all go. No more attachment, affiliation ties to samsara. You become karma-less. As far as the earth karma goes, as far as the sphere of karma to do with this earth goes, and you travel out into cosmos. There's another, another form of karma that awaits you. Um, that awaits you to do with um, cosmos and Buddha fields which we can, could go into in another lecture, maybe I should do that sometime, but that's some aspect that um, most Buddhists are totally ignorant of. It's what happens to Buddhas. For a disciple, for all disciples, the thing is that you're no longer interested in creating karma. You're not interested in doing anything more that binds you to the earth that binds you to samsara, that binds you to the bardo states, that binds you to the wheel of birth and death, to the six realms, or anything else of that nature. That's not what you're about. You're only interested in cleansing your karma in such a way that it helps sentient beings. And what is it that cleanses your karma? While you're in an ignorant state, while you're not enlightened, you don't know. On the whole, what is karma to be cleansed, what is not. You blunder this way and that. However, it is not quite the truth. In reality, because you are on the path to enlightenment, because from birth as bodhisattvas you have chosen to gain enlightenment, even though at first while you're young you don't realize it, your whole life has been woven already for you, for to cleanse your karma. So you're born into family situations, difficult testing times, sometimes some terrible um, situations where you may even be blinded or lose a limb or something like that, because that is the type of karma you must cleanse. Nothing happens by chance. On the inner realms, the lords of liberation, the master, the enlightened one, that is the center of the mandala of which you are part of is ever watchful and we know of the diva kingdom which we could go into another subject 
um, that are rearranging your karma. So you have the inner voice, the voice of intuition, flashes of revelation telling you that you must do this, the voice of conscience. You know not to argue with it because that if you follow, go against it, you're going against your conscience. Sometimes um, your karma can, uh, or the voice can be very strong. Like once when I was 18 and I was busy engrossed in, in thinking about these metaphysical physical subjects, which I just discovered then. And I was in Perth and I was just about to cross a busy road, but I was so engrossed in my meditation, I forgot that I was actually crossing a busy road. And I took a step on the road. I was going to take a step on the road. And then a voice entered and shouted in my head, Bodo, jump back. And I jumped backwards. Immediately. And at that moment, a car went past. And if there was not something looking after me, I would have been in front of that car underneath its wheels. I was not meant to leave my body. And therefore, um, there was this guidance. Bodo, jump. Backwards I jumped, not forwards. Right? And all of you have had your version of this type of experience. Um, this inner guidance telling you what to do, where to go next. And this is because you're high spiritual beings. And you're destined to um, lead exemplary lives. The thing is, until you meet the incarnate master, until you meet your true um, spiritual friends, as it's called in the, in the Buddhist books, um, those that, for instance, gathered around Milarepa or Atisha or Sankapa or Guru Rinpoche, uh, until you meet that bunch of spiritual warriors that you've been travelling with from life to life, you think you're alone. You think that you're separate. You are buffeted a distant way and that by your karma, but inside there's <coughs> this little voice telling you where to go and what to do. But the reality is you're never alone. Never ever for a moment have you been alone. You've always been guided. In the Christian world, they call it the guardian angel. Uh, we can say the grace of the guru. What everyone that's a disciple has to understand is not to go against that conscience, not to go against that inner voice, to listen to it very carefully. And this is the whole art of meditation. Later, as you develop the meditative awareness, you're learning to discriminate between all of the, the voices of um, what in the Bible is called mammon, all the, uh, the voices of um, the dark ones, the whisperings in your ear, your desire body, uh, your emotional sort of tendencies, your wish-fulfilling gems of, um, of desire that can lead you astray to the true, clear inner voice, um, the clear light, the, the, the whole training in meditation is to teach you to get rid of all thoughts 
all aspects of mind that do not produce this liberation, that do not produce enlightenment. You learn to find the true teacher, the true Dharma, and that to follow. And from then onwards, your whole life um, unfolds before you like an open book. When the Master looks at disciples, they are looking at the whole, at the past lives, the mistakes of past lives of samskaras. The life of the disciple is not, uh, not so much looking at what you've already mastered, your virtues, though that is utilised. We're trying to bring to the surface those hidden tendencies that aberrate your discipleship. Aspects of pride, and believe me, for most, there's all aspects of it. Sometimes you see um, the opposite, um, false humbleness, um, where the, um, the mantra all the time is, I must, be, um, I must not manifest pride, I must not manifest pride. Then there's this type of humbleness, this is again a form of pride that they manifest that um, is not correct. Uh, the humbleness that um, we are looking for is the humbleness that uh, manifests from the heart. Uh, you can call it the mantra Om Mani Padme Hum if you understand the mantra. Um, the Om 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 beating out. And it's a true respect for all of life. Every aspect of life is sacred. Every aspect of life is your guru is your father, is your mother. It has all something to teach you. You don't pluck flowers for the sake of plucking flowers. You respect them. Everything is thought out purposefully and gracefully because it has a purpose. You realize that the inner teachers are so vast and magnanimous in the scope of realization. You realize that the outer teacher which is nature itself, is so vast and magnanimous in its realization and what it has to give to you that you humble yourself automatically to that. The pictures of deities, of the Buddha, of Tara, of Gurumsha, whoever that you choose as your tutor, the deity that you can prostrate in front or that you bow to. It's the symbol simply of the one that has gone before you, that manifests the type of virtue, the type of cleansed mind structure that you are aspiring to, and therefore um, is the embodiment of that which you are to be, and for that reason you are humble. It's not because your mind is telling you that you ought to be humble, that you should be humble. It's because every atom in your body is automatically prostrating itself before the symbols of deity around you. And that is the way an enlightened being is. The Master is looking on the whole in disciples for all the vestiges of pride. The pride of, um, for instance, is your vision is awakened, you see some of your past lives you may have been a, um, a high rinpoche, for instance, you may have been a uh, an author of this or that famous book that everyone is studying. You may have been a, a well-respected scientist or musician. Um, you may have seen yourself as a king or queen or a baron or a great lord of some country. 
um, you may have, as one of my disciples, sort of glorifying the fact that he was uh, a great military re leader, um, conquering nations. Because your body suffers, you have a whole stack of accomplishments from past lives. These are your samskaras, and they generally produce pride. And what you have is a whole stack of teachings from past lives. I must knock pride on the head. I must knock pride on the head. I cannot have pride. And there it is. Every which way you turn, the pride comes to the surface. You are arrogant. Um, you often argue with the teachers. Um, you're often sort of not listening to others around you when they have good advice to give you, and so forth. What you'll have to learn to do is to overcome this type of pride is to learn to listen to the heart more and more. In, um, in Buddhism we have the three jewels um, the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha and the path, whichever way you look at it is complete obeisance to these three and this is the way of eliminating pride. The I, the me, the mine gets thrown away as you bow before the Sangha, before your brethren, before your brothers and the sisters, and you accept the spiritual advice they have to offer you. You've got to give to them, they have to give to you. You've all come from different backgrounds and you all have different qualities. You're a mandala. The mandala is not made of the same elements. It's not just made out of red marbles, for instance. It's made out of um, different deities, different entities that face the four quadrants and then the intermediate quadrants of space. Um, and every one has a unique position, a unique placing, unique qualities. Every disciple in a Sangha is unique. And therefore, the pride element is um, eliminated by total respect and acquiescence and obedience to the members of the Sangha that are there to help you overcome aspects of your own personality that you have overlooked or cannot look at because of your pride. There's very often um, qualities that people have developed from past lives that could be a, um, in normal way of looking at it, a great virtue. For instance, a certain way of painting pictures. But it could be a very formal type of painting pictures, a very restricted way, um, say, taught by modern art. Uh, and there may be a more divic way, a more um, abstract or a spontaneous way of doing the same sort of thing, with more beautiful colorations, more subtle colorations. And somebody may be able to teach you how to paint differently, paint more vastly. There are all sorts of concepts that people have that need to be broken down and rearranged in a much more open-minded way. So the Sangha teaches you what to think, what not to think, and some of your hidden defects. In a group such as mine, um, my students are there to point out those defects. And believe me, I often find that the pride element in others that have been taught 
what they need to know often makes them become uh, something like a howling dog or a wounded tiger. Uh, they simply react in one way or the other emotionally to what has been told to them. And often it's been told to them quite lovingly. By a disciple has given a lot of thought into this, has observed the student for quite a while. Often the teacher has told that disciple anyway, this, this um, student needs such and such a teaching. You know all about this, give it to it. And then we sometimes have this uh, catharsis uh, because that person doesn't want to own up to that particular quality. This is um, some of the karma that comes to the surface in a group. Or understand also in a group such as this, um, the, the way karma works in, in discipleship, that all of you have been brothers, sisters, lovers, husbands, wives, children to each other. It produces quite a potpourri of reactions and relationship issues um, to members of a, um, of a group may find that they were husband and wife in a former life. Always somewhere. But now they are partnered differently. The partnership may be um, for a short period of time and then there's a changeover in the dynamics of the group um, because a different type of karma comes into play. What I'm trying to get to, this is also uh, a Dzogchen teaching. Um, in this particular form of teaching, we're looking at all aspects of samsara. We're not asking you to wear um, the robes of a monk. We're not asking you to take vows, per se. You may take bodhisattva vows, you all have internal vows, of course. All of us has the, the main vow, which is not to harm others, not to cause suffering. We're here to help sentient beings, we're here to help all. But within the um, contingency of that particular vow, that you will never cease striving until all sentient beings are released from suffering, everything is possible. Every type of human action you can think of is possible. The master can shout and scream at the student, as in the case of middle repa, or uh, mapa to middle repa, um, or cause um, bodily pain, again, as in the case of mapa to middle repa, or naropa's um, uh, teachings by Talopa. Um, this is, so these types of um, teachings are legion, legion in the, the um, teachings of the Mahasiddhis to their students. So, what I'm trying to say is this, that your karma, your relationships of the past lives are brought to the surface. And if, for instance, there was a life where two people were, say, husband and wife, and they had a, a terrible life together, always shouting at each other, um, screaming, and um, one may have been quite violent to the other. It means that in this life it has not been resolved. Then those two people are brought together within the context of their discipleship and they have to fix up that violence. The, 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 the causes for the screaming matches. And if they don't fix it up, 
they cannot pass very far on their path to enlightenment. This is the number one issue between them. Not so much as to how much of um, how many books they've read of the of the good spiritual books, um, but this issue. If there's an aspect of pride that has been fixed up and hasn't been fixed up for some lives, this issue alone is what's most important to be worked out as far as the master sees. Again, it doesn't really matter how many of the good books you've read. And matter of fact, very often, um, you know, high, high um, students of meditation have not read much at all. It's not necessary to have read a lot, but it is necessary to cleanse your karma to become a Buddha in the end. And the students with whom you incarnated, your Dharma brothers and sisters, there's where you have the greatest amount of karma, good and bad. You have the type of karma that makes you work together for the salvation and education of all of humanity. And you have the karma that makes you attack each other because of your pride in the former life. As a matter of fact, you may have been generals of opposing armies in one life busy um, matching your wits and a type of chessboard of, of um, who rules that country or who gets to rule that country and impose the laws. You could have been different sort of religious leaders with opposing views, having um, a whole pile of students that are attacking each other because of those different views and it could be within the one religion. And every religion is full of um, religionists attacking other religionists of that religion. And um, often these um, religionists are the most cruel of all people. Um, think of the Inquisitional period of Europe. Protestants against uh, Catholics and some of the most horrendous crimes committed against their fellow <laughs> followers of the faith, the followers of the one true religion of of the, the law of love of Jesus. They just don't love on each other as I have loved you. No, they um, produce the opposite. And Buddhism is not free of this if we go into the history of Tibet. Some quite um, terrible sectarian laws and uh, wars. And manifest one of the reasons why Tibet was allowed to be invaded was because of the division amongst Tibetans um, at the beginning of the century, or during the uh, 1950s.